Okay, let's open our copy of God's Word again to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter number 9, and we're going to uh, read several passages of Scripture, several related passages of Scripture. I won't read that entire section that I read last Sunday, uh, but we will be reading quite a bit of Scripture. But uh, before we read, let's go again to our Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we lift our hearts up to you this evening. We want to thank you for the privilege to come together with your people. I want to thank you that you have given us your word. And I, I realize that often I don't realize what a treasure the Word of God is. And I know that many of your uh, professing people don't treasure the Word of God the way that we should. But Lord, we pray that you would speak to us tonight in it and through it and open our hearts and minds to receive it. May we May we listen to it as Art was praying earlier. May we listen to it with purpose to know it too. To find out what you're saying to us so we can live it and obey it. And we thank you for it. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes. That we'd behold wonderful truths out of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's, uh, let's read several verses. I'll begin reading in verse number 30 and down through verse number 37. And then we'll read verse 42. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. And they shall kill him, and after that he is, is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. Then verse 42, Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. Let's uh, look. Let's look now at uh, uh, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And verse number 46. Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you the same shall be great. And then Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, 
who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive <coughs> one such little child in my name, receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Verse number 10. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. And I'll, uh, I'll stop there, and we will uh, have many uh, verses that we want to touch on, but uh, if you'll remember the last couple of messages, we preached on the fact that the disciples who uh, Jesus uh, has now changed, there's been a change in his ministry and he's not going uh, town to town now and preaching in the towns, but he's, he, he, he's beginning to concentrate on teaching his disciples. He's beginning to pour in to them intently. And one of the main things that he is pouring into them is the fact that he is going to die, that he's going to be taken. He's going to Jerusalem. He will be taken by the chief priest and the elders. He will be mistreated. He will be beaten and hanged on a cross, and he will die and rise again. And the disciples have some sort of a mental block. As a matter of fact, I believe it's Luke that says that it's hidden from them, that they couldn't understand it. And there's a reason, there are several reasons I imagine that we could guess uh, why that uh, it's so hard for them to understand. But it seems pretty obvious to me that the main reason is that their pride and their, uh, the teachings that they've had all their lives uh, concerning the coming of the Messiah doesn't leave room in their thinking for a suffering Savior. And uh, as I said, their pride... Uh, assuming that they were the chosen ones of God, that God had chosen the nation of Israel, and there's nothing that anyone could do about that, that, uh, uh, that there was, they were good enough, that they were the people that pleased God. They were the apple of his eye, and that his Messiah would come, and he would deliver them, in a political way. And so they, they just keep going back to this, this uh, uh, understanding. And our, but I talked about before how that uh, uh, Jesus is dying. He's revealing to them that he's going to die. But his death is necessary because of their lostness. Not just theirs, of course, our lostness as well. We're lost. And it's hard. It's hard to make room in your thinking for a suffering Messiah if you don't realize how lost you are. And so that's why I spent so much time last Sunday talking about all the and this, and it wasn't exhaustive, I know, but several points about uh, the different aspects of the sacrifice of Christ and why he came to die and why we so desperately needed him. And so our relationship 
with Christ begins with understanding our condition. Right? Our condition in our natural estate before salvation is a condition of radical lostness. In our original state, we are hopeless. We are unworthy, sinful, defiled, and defiling. We are utterly and totally, willingly lost. Lost. Not just passively lost, but we're willingly lost. We're rebelliously lost. What a horrible word. That word lost. It's got to be the saddest word in the English language. But uh, our condition, if we understand our condition, it's going to have uh, some effect surely on our pride. And, uh, but then there's another uh, principle that we need to understand, and that is the cost of our salvation. You see, there was nothing could be done for us outside of a radical salvation to cure a radical lostness. And so what we're talking about is the glory of heaven, the eternal Son of God, the one who was always in eternity enjoying the presence and glory of his Father, stepped out of heaven and took on himself flesh and in human flesh showed us the Father. He is God incarnate. And to think that God should die, that God would die. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? But when you get those two principles together... And realize that uh, where we were radically lost, now we have been radically saved through no efforts of our own, through no offerings of our own. I mean, just think about it. I know I've probably said this before, but if you could gather, if you could gather all the mineral riches from all out of the whole universe. If there was some way you could gather all those things together and offer them to God for your salvation, it wouldn't be enough. And if you could gather all the humanitarian works that have ever been done, all the sacrifices that have ever been made in all of history and offer them to God for your salvation, it would not be enough. There's only one hope. And that's Jesus. And Jesus saved his people from their sins by his work on the cross. And so that produces a result. These two principles result, when we understand them, they result in humility. <laughs> There's nothing that will put you face down before God in a worshipful attitude more than realizing how unworthy you are and how glorious He is and what great mercy He has shed upon you in order to save you. And so, uh, uh, but the disciples didn't get this. They didn't understand it because the proud man will never understand the necessity of or value of the cross. His pride makes it easy to look for a hope, for a kingdom, and even expect a divine king and a divine kingdom that does not include a cross. 
Now you understand what I'm saying. A proud man will never understand the necessity or value of the cross because his pride makes it easy for him to expect God to do what he wants without a cross. A cross for himself or a cross for the Savior. He doesn't expect it. He expects a kingdom that gives him everything that he wants because he really thinks he deserves it. And this is, in reality, what's happening in the disciples' hearts. It's a, it's a rejection, uh, actually, of the cross. That's what uh, Jesus said about it in chapter 8, it seems to me, that uh, that's kind of what Jesus is saying when he says, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And here's my point that I was just making a moment ago. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever, therefore, that shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the power or cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So this is a, a being ashamed of the cross, being willing to reject the cross, desiring a kingdom without a cross, a crown without a cross, and it cannot be. And this is, <coughs> uh, this is, as I said, the, uh, the problem of the disciples. If you look in chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, and uh, verses 35 through 45, listen to this. Or look with me. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Boanerges, these, these guys, Jesus gave them another name, didn't he? Was it Boanerges or Boagernes? Maybe. I don't. But anyway, it means sons of thunder. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, that's their father's name, came unto him saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. You see where they're going here, don't you? You've already read it, I know, but you see where they're going. Lord, we got a, we, we want to ask you to do something for us. We, before we even tell you what it is, we want you to tell us you'll do it. <laughs> we want you to give us whatever we ask. And he says, what would you that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. Do you, do you see what they're doing here? Again, they're rejecting that cross. They want the glory. They want the crown without the cross. Jesus said unto them, you know not what you ask. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and, the ba and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now listen to it. Listen to what they said. They said unto him, we can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized withal shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. This is, a, this is just a, a real problem for the disciples. And so, Jesus, I guess we could say, <laughs> from a human perspective, he's got his work cut out for him to get this 
into his disciples' minds and hearts. And it would seem to me that after something like this, that Jesus would be so frustrated that he would say, <laughs> you bunch of dummies. I mean, come here and let me shake you until your little eyeballs rattle because you need to get it. You need to get it. I've been telling you over and over and, and you're not getting it because you don't want to get it. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't give them a good chewing out over this. Rather, he gives them an explanation of the path to true greatness. And then he illustrates true greatness with a visual, uh, a, a visual um, principle. So... Let's look at verses 33 and following. He came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. They, uh, it, it's, it, it's precious to see how gentle Jesus is is with them but uh, at the same time he knows how to shut them up doesn't he? Uh, every time I read this I'm reminded of uh, back years ago when I was a young preacher I still make some pretty uh, some pretty rabbit uh, crazy boo-boos every once in a while but uh, uh, I used to travel around with a guy that was just a really well-known preacher he preached uh, uh, he pastored a big church and he preached revival meetings and, and camp meetings and Bible conferences all over the country. And, and he picked me to travel around with him. And, and so every once in a while, we'd have some other guys. There, there was always people wanting to hang on uh, to him and be known as one of his posse and stuff. And so we'd get to talking sometimes and we'd be driving down the road and there'd be two or three of us in the car, and and, uh, and uh, Brother Sammy, he'd be sitting over there in the passenger's seat asleep, or at least we thought he was, and, and we'd start talking about some of, these, uh, some of these preachers that were compromisers. They just wasn't all that they ought to be. They were compromisers. They just wasn't near what we were. And he'd let us go on for 15 or 20 minutes, and then he he did this more than once. He'd say, Brother Gary, why don't you just pray for that brother for us right now? While we drive down the road, why don't you just lead us in prayer? He knew how to shut me up. And it kind of, it was embarrassing. And I, I guess it was that way with the disciples, too. When he asked them, what was it that you were arguing about? He didn't ask. Listen, you know Jesus never asks the question because he don't know the answer, right? He asks the question because he wants to be sure they know the answer, right? He wants them to say it. But they held their peace, but he already knew. And verse number 35, And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, now Here's the path to true greatness. If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, the word last that he uses here is a, a pretty interesting word. I didn't, I, I just figured, you know, last is last, but I looked it up and studied it a little bit. And uh, it's a word, um, a Greek word, uh, eschatos, which uh, from that word we get the word eschatology, which means last things. <coughs> but eschatos means last, final. It is a superlative. You know what a superlative is, right? It's a superlative in other words, it expresses superlative value. 
Therefore, it means the last of the last. Or I might say the lastest of the last. <laughs> the last of the last. The furthest from the firstest. The lowest, the least. The farthest from the most. The uttermost of the lowly. That's what Jesus said. If you want to be up here in the kingdom of God, you've got to get down there. The way up is down. The way up in the kingdom of God is not to toot your own horn. It's not to boast and be proud. It's not to seek your own, but to seek the lowest place. To find the lowest spot for yourself. Now this is something that the scripture teaches very clearly and it's not just here. Philippians chapter number 2. I love this passage of scripture right here. And I want us to read it and just, just think on it for a moment. Now Paul is writing here and exhorting the, the Philippian Christians to have a humble spirit like the Spirit of Christ. Jesus is the picture of humility, is he not? He is the very picture of humility. And so he says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Listen now, verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Wonder what it would be like if we actually put that into practice. I wonder what our fellowships would be like if we literally believed that everybody else is better than we are and more and further along in, in kingdom work and sanctification and, and just uh, more usable and better. I mean, what if we really believe that? And that's the attitude that we are supposed to have. We are supposed to love one another and esteem one another as better than ourselves. Us preachers, we have a hard time with that sometimes. I, I know uh, years ago when I would be in preachers' meetings and things like that, and I would be sitting on the front row, and somebody would be up there preaching, I'd be thinking, ought to be me up there, you know. You know, that's not the way it should be. <laughs> the way it should be is that I should be saying, praise God, Lord, give that man an extra uh, dose of anointing and, and ability and use him mightily to speak the word because I would mess it up if I were up there. It's very likely that I would too. Philippians 2, 3, Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. Now, these are things that I, I, I'm just going to take my time and, and just hit them all. But verse number 10, he says, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. I think he's saying about the same thing. Right? 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject 
have an attitude of submission, of subjection, one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What do you need? Do you need grace? I do. I need it as desperately right now as I need it the first time I ever bowed before the Lord and asked Him to save my soul. I need it. I need His grace just as desperately right now. And and so I'm I'm fighting a, a losing battle. I'm going the wrong direction if I'm trying to promote myself. Well, all right, let's get back to Mark chapter 9. So he says in verse number 35, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. And the word servant here is, uh, uh, I, I was hoping it would be the word doulos, which means a slave, but that's not the word here, it's the word uh, diakonos, or deacon. Let him be the deacon of all. And it's the same word uh, that we use when we go back to Acts chapter 6, where the disciples, the disciples were uh, uh, being criticized, and the believers were being criticized because uh, some of the widows weren't being uh, taken care of. And so the disciples said, search out seven men honest of good report for the Holy Ghost that we can set over this matter and we, uh, we'll give ourselves to prayer and the study of the word. It's not meet or it's not, it's not right, it's not seemly that we should leave the word of God and wait on tables. Serve tables. That's what this word is. It means a servant. A deacon is a servant of the church. He's a servant of the Lord, but a deacon is a servant of the church. And he's a person who uh, performs certain duties of a humble and menial nature, such as waiting tables, caring for the needs of others, such as physical needs, household needs, or spiritual needs. That is how to be great in the kingdom of God. That's how uh, uh, James and John didn't get that then, did they? That's because they wanted to uh, just go right straight to the highest place. One on the right hand, one on the left hand. But then Jesus gives this uh, principle of child likeness and so he verse number 36 says and he took a child let's look at these words he took a child and set him in the midst of them and when he had taken him in his arms he said to them i, I think mark's using some pretty pictorial language here and I've tried to just sit and see that in my mind's eye because, you know, uh, uh, I guess you can understand this, but sometimes little children are afraid of me when they first see me. And they are you too. Not all of them. Some, some kids will come right to you, but most of the time, a child has to get used to you, doesn't it? But Jesus is one that the children just come up to. And he's able to just reach down and, uh, and the kid doesn't turn and run away or doesn't pucker up like it's going to start crying or anything. I can almost see it just lift its hands and Jesus picks it up and, and uh, uses this child as an illustration. Because in that day... Now, you know, I guess we, we might put a little bit more 
emphasis on uh, on children's uh, uh, I don't know what they can do what they can we, we like to put a lot of in uh, uh, emphasis on their their smarts and what they can do their talents and things like that but in that day children were basically the least of the least they were under slaves actually a slave would be the children would be turned over to a slave if the parents had a slave for that slave to train and to take care of and and so a child is a person who is personally powerless he has no social status whatsoever now in our uh, society a child might have a little social status and uh in the society over across the pond, apparently they do. But uh, in that day, a child had no social status. He was totally dependent. And that can be said for all children. And we're talking about little children. We're talking about toddler children. Uh, this is a, a child that is totally dependent. Someone has to feed him. Someone has to watch about him. Someone has to take care of him. He has no rights. He has no social significance. And the social insignificance of a child, uh, as Jesus is presenting him, is the exact opposite of what the disciples were looking for. Their concern was for power, for recognition, and for glory. And Jesus holds the child up as a picture of humility and unconcern for social status. Jesus takes the child in his arms. And Jesus uses this as a visual aid, an illustration that tells us that the kingdom, power, and authority are exercised by the least likely and not the most likely. You know, it's, uh, it's going to be a surprise, I assume, when we all get gathered in to the presence of the Lord and He begins to he begins to reward those who have followed him and those places of prominence are taken. It'll be a surprise to find that someone that nobody ever heard of has done more for the glory of God than some who have pastored the largest churches and led the greatest religious movements in all of history. I, I know we've talked about this before, but you know, uh, Jim Elliott, the missionary, one of the uh, Ecuador Five who was killed in January of 1956 by the Alca Indians. You know, they, uh, he and his... Uh, his partners went there to evangelize these, this uh, remote tribe in Ecuador and they knew that it was a violent tribe and they did everything. They took all the precautions that they could take, but for some reason the tribe came out and killed every one of them and they never got a chance to share the gospel with them. And Jim Elliott is a name that everyone knows in Christian circles. I mean, you know, you hear of Jim Elliott all the time. But sometimes we don't know that he had a brother. And his brother's name was Bertram. And Bertram and his wife went to, I, I believe it's Peru, but it's another South American country, and spent 40-something years and planted all kinds of churches. And nobody's ever heard of Bertram Elliott. You see, things are not the way we see them always. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it seems like we failed and sometimes it seems like 
the work that we do is uh, little and doesn't mean anything, but our Lord sees it all. And He's keeping a record. Every conversation, every cup of cold water given in His name, it's significant. It means something. It's important. It makes headlines in glory. We're called children in many places in the Word of God. The people of God are called the children of promise, children of the day, children of the light, beloved children, dear children, children of God, children of the kingdom. And we're all children in the sense that we're incomplete. A child is growing and developing and we are growing and developing and I don't care how long you've been in the faith. You're, you better not stop growing. If you're not moving forward, you're going backward. You're not standing still. We're incomplete. We're weak. We're dependent. We're underdeveloped, unskilled, vulnerable, and often very, very immature. So the name fits. But in this case, Jesus is saying that we need to be childlike in another sense. And there's three things that I, I'll go ahead and give them to you because I won't have time to deal with all of them. Three things I want to give you about this. First of all, we must enter the kingdom as humble as a little child. Secondly, believers, believers must be treated as children in the kingdom. And thirdly, kingdom children must be cared for as children. So, we must enter the kingdom as humbly as a little child. Remember Matthew 18, 1 through 4. Well, I'll just read uh, verses 2 through through uh, five, And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily, I say unto you, except you be converted. You like that word? Except you be converted and become as a little child, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. The word converted here is uh, an interesting word. It, uh, it means that uh, it requires a radical change. There has to be a radical change in us because by nature we don't like to act like a little child in this sense. We don't like to humble ourselves. And if we do, we want to brag about how humble we are. In, uh, in verse number three, where he says that we've got to be converted, it means to make an about face. It means to do a 180, not a 360. It means to do a complete turnaround. In other words, you're going to have to change. There's going to have to be a radical change. It's repentance is what it is. You're going to have to repent and be humble like a little child or you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew 5 and verse 5. Blessed are the meek. Wait. No, oh, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what being poor in the spirit is, right? You know what poor in spirit is? I realize that I have nothing. I in my hands no price I bring simply to thy cross I cling. We must enter the kingdom as humble as a little child. Number two, 
believers must be treated as children. We ought to, and listen, here's what Jesus says about them in uh, uh, chapter 9, Mark chapter 9 and verse 37, verse 37a. He says, whosoever shall receive one such children in my name receiveth me. We are to take it. And remember, he's not just talking about little children. He's talking about all of us. He's talking about us having an attitude, a humble spirit, a childlike spirit. And we're supposed to treat one another in that way. We're supposed to delight in one another the way we delight in a child. Uh, and enjoy one another the way we would enjoy a child. In uh, chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, he said, And they brought young children to him, that he should touch them, and his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased, and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come to me. And forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. He looks upon us with that kind of delight. He loves to take us up in his arms. Just like he held those little children and they were content with nothing but being in the arms of Jesus. Oh, that we would be that kind of people. That we would delight in one another. That we would delight in the the prospect of seeing people born into the family of God. And then lastly, kingdom children must be cared for. Now, I don't want to be hurtful, but I can't help it that this comes at this point and in this way. But in chapter 9 and verse 42, Jesus says, Whosoever shall offend... One of these little ones that believe on me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. We've got to be careful with how we treat one another. Mm -hmm. We must take care. Mm -hmm. Jesus said uh, in Matthew 18, let me read to you how Matthew says it. Matthew 18 and verses 10 through 14, he says, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. And the word despise here means to think against them or to disesteem. In other words, to not place the proper value on them. To assume that you can do without them. And... He says that, take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye? If a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? Are you seeing now the metaphor is changed? It's not a child, it's a sheep, but it's the same thing, right? And we've lost a sheep and he's going to leave the ninety and nine and he's going to go and stay until he finds that one sheep. And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, 
It is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. We've got to protect them. We've got to teach them. We've got to feed them. We've got to be gentle with them. Even when we need to deal with their issues. Back in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. He said, Moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee. Now this is, this, this is the same stuff here now, same context. If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou, shalt, thou hast gained thy brother. The whole point of this is to gain the brother, right? But if he will not hear thee, then take, it, take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. If he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. That's last resort. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, shall be done for them of my Father in heaven. This is, this is all context for where two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am in the midst of them. So this is a... a a church responsibility to be gentle and kind to one another, to serve one another, to deal with one another's issues and problems and uh, even offenses. And we're supposed to do it with sensitivity and unconditional love. I'll give you one last thing and we'll, we'll be through. I know I've kept you long and bored you, but I don't, uh, I don't want to leave this out. Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5. You don't have to turn there, just, just listen. Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, and considerest not the beam that's in thine own eye? In other words, the mote is a little splinter, and the beam is a big log. So I got a big log in my eye, and I say, heart, I see a speck in your eye. I need to, I need to help you with that, brother. <laughs> he says, Why beholdest thou the mote that's in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that's in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. And it just comes down to this. It takes gentleness. You're dealing with the eye. You gotta be careful. You gotta be gentle. And so... We owe that to treat one another as if you were trying to get a speck out of the eye of one of your children. You don't want to damage anything that you don't have to. Well, we can think on those things. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would just make these things live in our hearts and Bring them to our minds and our thoughts as we need them in Jesus' name.